Apata acknowledges the custodians and elders past and present of the land on which we work, practice, rehearse, perform and present across Australia. We pay respect to the cultural authority and traditions of the land. The first peoples of this nation express their culture through music, dance and storytelling and it is a privilege to continue a tradition of storytelling and performance in this country. We acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first Australians and traditional custodians of the land where we live, work and learn. Hello everyone and welcome to the Australian Performing Arts Teachers Association APADA podcast. My name is Lou and I'm your host today and it is an absolute honour and privilege to be sitting down with APADA Ambassador and Councillor Will Centurion, Councillor and Life Coach for Actors, Singers and Dancers. Welcome Will. Lou, thank you so much for having me on today. This is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and and giving your time, which is greatly appreciated because I know you're a very, very busy man. So a little bit about you, Will, before we get into conversation. So as a dancer, singer and actor in the music theatre industry, you've been on stage, whether that be in the rehearsal room or touring for over 20 years on both a national and international circuit, and you've been on productions such as A Chorus Line, West Side Story, The King and I, The Lion King, Aladdin and In the Heights. And you were also um, a member in the top 20 of So You Think You Can Dance Australia 2010. After graduating from the Australian College of Applied Psychology, you retired from the performance world and looked at using those skills and focusing on integrating your stage experience and knowledge of psychology and dance and performance to create mental health services that target the need of Australian performers. You work across using integrated therapies and help creative minds navigate the many challenges of the arts industry and that's from a range of areas. It might be performance anxiety, self-confidence issues, negative self-talk, goal-setting and career transition, which we all go through at some stage, but career transition sometimes we're not as well prepared for as we thought. Will is all about keeping performers connected to their passion and creativity and purpose with service that encourages personal growth and self-empowerment, a platform where performers can access the resources they need to enhance their psychology, their well-being and enjoying a sustainable career in the arts. The work Will is delivering to our community in performing arts has been invaluable, probably more so than ever over the past few months. Whether you're a professional waiting for the lights to come back on in the venue, students returning to classes, and our teachers who over the last few months have worked tirelessly via digital technologies and the virtual world to keep connected with their students and continue support for their practising community. So you've been out there quite extensively, Will, over the last few months connecting with people in the virtual world. How has it been um, for teachers and students um, working in the virtual world, especially in a time of, you know, disruption and uncertainty? 
this has been a, a big period of change for everyone, a big period of adaptability and readjustment and rediscovery. Um, you know, nobody saw this interruption coming and the impact that it had on the arts, on students, on teachers, um, you know, not just in Australia, but globally being massive. Um, everyone's just sort of doing the best that they can to manage this kind of change. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a, a period of learning um, and adaptability to have to lean into the virtual world and try to maintain those connections through a screen. Yeah, very different. And it, it's, um, I mean, we watch plenty through the screen. I mean, we even interact through the screen, but for it to be on a full-time basis, even I think the breakdown of in instruction and how we connect with a class of 30 through the virtual world versus a class of 30 in a studio, you know, very very diverse in requirements and um, understanding, I think, your students and that individuality would be more important than ever. It's a big ask on educators. I mean, their entire um, delivery process had to change, it had to adapt. And, um, you know, that takes an incredible amount of effort. I think more work probably goes into, um, you know, having to do things on Zoom um, than face-to-face because, there's got to be such attention to detail. Um, and, yeah, I just I tip my hat to every performing arts teacher that's adapted to the new world and that's done the best that they can to deliver the good. Well, you know, and mental health and, and uh, psychological change can be a quite a big shift. And performing arts, we're hearing about it all the time um, with the pressures that have been under, and that might be from especially those in the, the professional circuit where they're out of work, um, spotlight very heavy on them. We're not sure what dates are, what can come back when, what capacities are. And quite often we miss that conversation about our grass, you know, roots community. Um, the level of challenge for teachers and students and parents as well. I mean, you've got the bedroom turned into a dance studio, the lounge room with a chair being used. You've got kids on the back deck that are, you know, finding their new space to focus on what they love so much. What have been some of those, you know, shared common issues that you've worked through with performing arts um, groups over the past couple of months? Yeah, you're so right there. I think the parents would say that the kids are twirling all over the place and they've had enough. Um, yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's had to, <clears throat> to be a lot of surrendering in order to accommodate for um, dance at home and, and practice and whatnot. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's maintaining some kind of connection in a time of disconnection is, is really, really important. Um, you know, people's performance spaces have changed. People's rehearsal spaces have changed you know, not being let back into the studio, being separated from the group or the community that you were in, um, not having the feedback to constantly motivate you. Like, there's, there's so much that's going on, um, you know, in the world of, of dance. And, you know, students are doing the best that they can to manage the situation and parents are doing the best that they can to manage the situation. I think a lot of um, growth has come from this. I think it's... Um, ask people to really stop and question what it is that they're doing and more so why it is that they do what they do. Um, and and it, it's been up to the individual to maintain motivation and discipline and perseverance. Um, so I think as chaotic as it has been, 
um, it's been a, a wonderful opportunity for growth and discovery at this time. I think so too and I just kind of, you know, reflect on families I know around me and, and my own household. You know, you've got someone in the kitchen cracking out their plies and thinking about their technique and then you've got one upstairs in the bedroom and they've got the violin out and they're, they're thinking about, you know, their chords and, and what they need to do and the conversation has changed remarkably in, in households and, and probably one of the good things is, is I think parents, as hard as it's been for them... Um, with, you know, not just even school education but also those extracurriculum activities that they drop their kids off to. They've certainly become more involved but I think there's a really big appreciation for teachers out there at the moment and what they actually do. Absolutely and it's, it's moments like this, you know, everything has a sort of knock-on, um, you know, every every experience of pain or discomfort or uncomfortability serves some kind of purpose um, and I think this has made parents aware of just how great a role teachers play in students' lives, um, you know, how much they contribute to their well-being, um, to their sense of safety, to, to help them discover their identity. Um, they're just Teachers are just such a valuable resource. Um, and, you know, I think um, this has been a great time for people to become aware of just how important it is to have a good teacher, to have a caring teacher, to have um, a teacher that has empathy, you know, that has um, good, is driven by good values, cares about community, cares about education, and um, yeah, it's allowed everybody to kind of refine what they do. So yeah, I, I do hope that the teachers feel as appreciated as they should. I do too, because incredible what they've done in the last six months under, you know challenging circumstances as a past performer yourself look I'm sure you've encountered those moments of self-doubt I'm sure there's kids out there now that are starting to return to the classroom even and and there's a bit of self-doubt where they're up to or what they have or haven't done there's highs there's lows and you know there's there's transition and quite often when I talk about transition I'm talking about um, when people look at moving to their next career after they've been in the arts or whatever those things are but we're actually going through quite a stage of of transition now for you know young kids through to professionals um, let's talk about your transition and as a performer transferring to what you do now in counselling and working in particular performing arts um, how has that really benefited you with your work the lived experience of being a performer um, is, is so valuable. The transferable skills that have come from being on stage, being in front of audiences, having to hold my own um, discipline, uh, you know, all of that sort of stuff. They've just they've been so valuable and, and I have carried that across with me into my work in mental health. Um, you know, I, I went through a lot of healing changing from one career to another, you know, uh, while, while I was a performer, I, I had lots of battles with mental health issues like depression, anxiety, and imposter syndrome, and had to do a lot of work on myself. And so now I feel as though, as a mental health therapist, I'm a lot more aware of who I am. I'm a lot more aware of the world. I'm a lot more aware of people's stories. I appreciate stories. I have empathy towards people's stories. And so particularly, you know, seeing as I work with actors, singers, dancers, teachers, parents, 
anyone that kind of falls under the performing arts umbrella, it's just it's allowed me to appreciate them as a whole person so much more. Um, I see people as individuals. I, 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 I never see someone as some kind of like experiment or, 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 or issue. They are just a person doing the best that they can and, and, and sometimes needing support in order to be able to kind of move forward. So, yeah, just lived experience both with mental health and with being a performing arts um, professional has really armoured me up for what it is that I do today. Look, I, I agree, and from a performing arts background, um, it's, you know, it's the transition. There's a number of transitions in your career, and I'm, I'm sure there are that for others in other industries as well. And, you know, just even we were having a conversation the other day about the transition for touring, like super excited, I'm on tour, I'm here, I'm part of the action, I'm in a new city, everything I'm going to see, and that isn't quite what you expect when you're on the road and the bus and the planes and the time frame and the rehearsal yeah. and those types of things. So that, for me, that was like transition, one of the unexpected, and it was a sink or swim moment, I'd have to say. There wasn't a guidance. It was like, this is where you need to be at this time to do these things. And then there's yeah. the transition when you come off to a what is what is everyday life and and settling off that? So there's mm-hmm. there's so much, isn't there? And I mean, you're you know just from reading your resume, you're quite the global traveller yourself. How did you work those transitions, especially with you know family and loved ones, and you're connected and then you're disconnected, and it's it's quite challenging, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I, I always knew that there were going to be sacrifices um, working in this profession. You know, I left. Sydney when I was 18 and moved to Melbourne to do my dance training and then I graduated at 21 and I moved overseas to Germany and ended up staying in Europe for seven years and then moved back to Australia again and then immediately went on tour with West Side Story and you know I I spent most of my life living out of a suitcase and just chopping and changing and missing birthdays and funerals and weddings and whatnot. Um, you know, this, this isn't an easy road. Um, I was aware of that, but at some point, uh, the effort, you know, uh, outweighs the reward. And so I think after 20 years of being in the business and 20 years of chopping changing, I realized that I was not that person anymore and that I wanted some security and some stability in my life. And I wanted to appreciate the little things and be a muggle. <laughs> and, um, you know, not have to do eight shows a week and get to enjoy dinners and, and weekends. And so, yeah, I, I, I embraced it for as long as it lasted. I knew it wasn't going to last forever. Um, but there certainly did come a time where I was like, I'm ready for the normal life. Yeah, the next, life. the next chapter. Yeah. And um, while you make that decision, it's quite a bit to work through. I came across a really great post only last week on someone's Instagram account and um, she's a, a dance teacher and she said, uh, she posted obviously out to parents and, and to students and she said, what's something you love about yourself? And the reason why she posted this is she, she put in her explanation underneath that students returning to the classroom are being incredibly hard on themselves. Their technique isn't where they want it to be. They're not progressing where they thought they wanted to be. Their goals weren't 
weren't what they wanted. They felt like they'd lost time. So she basically yeah. went back to starting at some foundations and building that, that confidence again. And I think in the classroom, as we slowly build and go back, that's, that's really important. What a fantastic approach. I think it's placing the focus on what you do have rather than what you don't have. Like, sure, a lot was lost in all the change that's happened. You know, people's technique might have shifted. Um, people's passion might have shifted. People's motivation might have shifted and their discipline might have shifted. And so it's easy to come back and have a lot of anxiety and stress and overwhelm uh, on all the things that you feel you are missing or have missed. But the important thing is that the beginning of this next chapter should be about um, discovery and, and creation and, um, you know, uh, the embodiment of all of these new skills that you develop in that interim. And so placing a focus on what you do have rather than what you don't have is, is definitely a smart way forward. Agreed. And I really felt she was trying to convey that and, and build some perspective around, look, we're all in this together and, and you know, together we'll start at our foundations and, you know, we will keep moving through even though, you know, a Stedford's might have changed or exams might have changed. It's about where we're at now and, more importantly, the perspective of, of now where we're going, which I, I thought it was a beautiful post. I fell in love with it. I couldn't like it enough to tell you the truth. Um, it's really, it really well spoken, and I, and I, I, you know, letting go of expectations is massive. You know, teachers have had to let go of expectations, students have had to let go of expectations, and um, I think when you do that, the beauty is that you surrender to the present moment, you appreciate what you have, you work with what you've got, and you build from there. Exactly. It's 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 hard. I think sometimes in the performing arts, student, professional, teacher, oh, we're we're um, we're our own worst taskmasters on our own expectations, <laughs> and um, and exactly that. I think you know, looking at where you are at now, and and you know, taking this moment, and then looking at where you want to go, a bit of a reset per se. Um, well, I really cherish the work when you talk about mindfulness. And I think it's such an important part of, of your conversation. So just explain to us, what is mindfulness? So mindfulness is, is being in the present moment. It's learning how to anchor yourself, um, how to settle yourself in the now. Um, one of our biggest enemies, our greatest enemies, is either the past or the future, and we can really easily project there. But the, the power that we have, the place where we make the most difference and where we affects the most kind of change is is in the now, is in the present moment. So mindfulness is about, um, you know, remaining present, remaining anchored. It's about allowing thoughts to drift in and out without any attachment, um, not sticking to your thoughts, not being defined by your thoughts, just knowing that they're there, that they will circulate, they move like clouds through a blue sky or like sushi plates on a sushi train. Um, but, you know, understanding that your thoughts and feelings only have as much power over you as you give them, that there's always space between you and your thoughts and feelings, and that staying in the present moment is where you are, you're most aware, you're most powerful, um, you're fullest. And, and what are some, you know, what, what's an activity that um, you would suggest or or 
say to somebody to bring yourself to this space to gain this empowerment what's an activity and I'm sure it's different for everybody depending on who they are and and you know what circumstances they're in but what's a a, an activity that they can use to go right I'm going to put myself in this space I'm going to gain the most I can out of it well the only the only um thing we have control over is our breath it's the only thing we have control over. So using the breath as your best friend is extremely important. Um, scientifically, it's proven that 10 breaths, 10 inhale and exhale is enough to reset your system and to give you a sense of calm and to allow you to sort of remain present. Um, so focusing on your breath, focusing on the in and out, um, how it shifts your body, the space that it creates inside you, the space that it creates around you, the space that it creates between you and a challenging or uncomfortable situation or person that you're dealing with. Um, the breath is your best friend. So just reminding yourself that the breath is something that you always have to rely on is a, a really, really useful tool. A simple one. It's free. We can all do it. Um, so, yeah, just learning how to... Uh, give in to the breath and allow that to, to calm you and to anchor you is, is something that you can apply anywhere, the bar on the train, um, the ballet bar, not the, the social bar. The bar. <laughs> well, it could be used there <laughs> um, too, Will. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, actually. That's true. When, you, when you've been waiting quite a while for your drink to arrive. That's right. And um, more so now with 1.5 <laughs> in between us. So, yes, we could apply this anywhere. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, the breath is your best friend. Um, it's a great mindful tool to have. Just closing your eyes, um, you know, listening to the sounds that are around you, listening to what's close, listening to what's far, um, not getting swept up in your thoughts, just allowing them to pass. Yeah, there's, there's some really beautiful, simple things that we can do to remain um, mindful. And if, all, if worse comes to worse and you're out of ideas, then just download an app on your iPhone and allow somebody to guide you through it. Will, you offer several courses and certainly great support services and that's counselling, a a space that you create for people to be heard. There's coaching where people can explore possibilities, they can unlock their full potential on an individual basis, through to mental health workshops, um, capturing education and resources for schools, which is just wonderful. And there's also the Teacher's Mental Health Toolkit, which I'd just like to explore with you a little bit this morning. Um, if you could just share, what was your drive to build this particular toolkit? I, I know a couple of teachers have experienced it and just speak of it's completely invaluable um, to the work and what they're doing and the benefits that, you know, it, it unlocks. Um, I think it, it came from, I noticed, you know, as I sort of developed into this uh, field of mental health that there's some wonderful organizations like Headspace and Beyond Blue and Spain Australia and the Black Dog Institute and they all have great mental health services and a lot of those services go out to schools and educate kids um, and educate teachers on complex mental health issues. But I felt that there was a real big gap um, in relation to getting helping teachers understand students' emotional struggles Um, and students' mental health struggles that aren't complex. And likewise for the students as well, it's if they're not going through anxiety or depression and they're just 
they're battling self-doubt and self-talk, low self-esteem, low self-worth. There's nothing that kind of allows students to understand that. So the Teacher's Mental Health Toolkit is basically like a professional development that allows teachers to understand their students' minds, to understand some of the presentations like that they show, like shame, guilt, um, avoidance. It also teaches to use appropriate language to both educate and support this. So there's a lot of what to say and what not to say. Um, it provides teachers with self-care strategies. It's, it's armoring teachers up to understand their students as a human, not as a mental health issue. And, um, and it gives them just practical solutions to be able to implement in the classroom and to implement with the individuals that they teach. Oh, look, look I've, I've heard quite a few um, teachers that have just said just the way they even approach certain things now, it gives them a better foundation and understanding in a bigger class and that, that it's a class but there's also individuality in there and there's identity for each person in there and, and it, it just confounds that, that understanding for them and it, it helps them see through. So, you know, hats off to you, invaluable toolkit and I would put out there that um, we should all go through and do the mental health toolkit. It only makes us better. A lot of it came from uh, ways I wish teachers had understood me when I was going through... Um, my professional development. So there were many things that they weren't seeing in me and that's why I created the Teacher's Toolkit. Um, I had a lot of battles with shame and there was a lot of shaming that happened um, at my performing art school. And so basically a, a big part of the Teacher's Toolkit is getting teachers to be aware of how the words that they use can create shame and the things that they do can create shame and how to avoid those kinds of situations so that you know, they do best by their students and so their students don't spend the rest of their adult lives recovering from that. Well, absolutely. I'd have to say I've been in quite a few classes, even in, you know, in professional world and rehearsal where you might be front and centre and I've still walked out of a class or a three-hour rehearsal or at the end of a performance and we've had our note session and I've walked out stage door and I've gone, I'm just not good enough. Absolutely. Um, looking at the road ahead, Will, we're, we're discussing earlier in the piece, we've got auditions that have changed, we've got intakes for schools that have changed, we've got um, competitions and exams, all had a very big impact. And it might even be for some places as we look to the end of the year, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? We go through our Estedfords, we get our exams happening, and then we have that end of year kind of celebration. We've got the concert, we've got the recital, parents are coming in and watching, and that may or may not be in a very different format this year, depending on where you are and, you know, what you need, what would you need to, to do to deliver that, that feeling of, oh, you know, 12 months down, that was just awesome. Um, thinking about students and teachers and parents, what, what do you think they need to consider here when it comes to that, that mental, oh, we may or may not have a big recital this year, we might have to record it and watch it virtually. It, it's quite a shift, isn't it? Big shift, but once again, I think that any uncomfortability or any pain has a purpose or serves a purpose. So imagine, for example, 
not having an audience there, not having mum and dad and friends and whatnot, um, it's going to place the students' mindset in, in a different uh, approach. So something positive that can come from that is that the performances will be intrinsically driven because it will be about the individual and it will be about the group that they are performing in. There's no audience there. So any joy, any celebration has to come for the group and it's for the group, nobody else. And I think that's a really, really powerful lesson in life. Um, that's the difference between, you know, uh, uh, validation that comes from within and validation that it is only driven by, exter- uh, it's only driven externally. Mm. So I don't necessarily think it's a bad lesson to learn to know that, you know, you won't always have an applause. You won't always have someone telling you you're doing a fantastic job. You won't always have someone patting you on the back telling you how wonderful you are. Sometimes you just have to do it for yourself. And, and it becomes about self-fulfillment. Exactly. And, you know, the peers that you're with on stage, you're there together. And a lot mm-hmm. of people don't realise if they've only been at the front of the curtain watching a performance, that the camaraderie of a group on stage and and uh, the support mechanism of you all watching each other, it's just the most invaluable experience. It's just wonderful. And it also might allow some people who struggle with an audience to live their full potential in those sorts of situations. Absolutely. Some people really, some people love the audience. It helps them thrive. It motivates them. Some people are absolutely terrified by it. So the removal of that um, for some performers is going to be a wonderful uh, opportunity to discover themselves in their fullest light, in their fullest capacity because they don't have to worry about someone watching and taking notes and coming back with some criticism. And they can just enjoy, enjoy it for themselves, just as you mm-hmm. said. One of my first reads, Will, as a follower on the weekend is your self-care Saturdays, and I love it. That's what I do with my <laughs> cup of tea. And I think about self-care Saturday, and it's not something I've ever really thought about until I sort of started following you and looking at your post, and I went, no, I'm going to read my self-care Saturday, I'm going to have my cup of tea and just chill for 30 minutes and get on with the day. We all need to consider our own self-care, and it's really important, and a lot of us aren't very good at that. So what's your self-care mantra? So you've done a post. What's your day? So my self-care practice begins with taking time in the morning for myself. That is so important. It is absolutely crucial to the rest of my day and it's crucial to my psychological and emotional health. So I wake up in the morning and I do a 20-minute Matt Pilates workout, followed by a 20-minute meditation, followed by either some journaling or reading some pages from a book or listening to a bit of a podcast. And I do all of that before I turn on the TV before I flick through social media, before I even have a conversation with my partner who lives with me, um, I make sure that I take that time for myself because I want to make sure that my tank is full and I want to make sure that my house is in order before I worry about everybody else's house. And so by taking that time, and, and call it selfish if you want to, but by, by self-caring, I make sure that I'm okay and that I have the oxygen mask on me and then I worry about the rest of the world and I worry about 
helping others and solving other people's problems and whatnot. But it starts with me first, and that that's so important. And and turning that into a practice is absolutely necessary because from that comes your full potential and comes longevity and comes um, you know wisdom. I start with a cup of tea, so I need to do a little bit more work now. I've decided after hearing that I need to improve my self-care mantra. It starts with your post, a cup of tea, and I'm, I'm going to try and squeeze in another 20 or 30 minutes there. You, you're right. It's about it's about refueling, and, and, you know, sometimes we get carried away with lives and what other people's needs in the household. So I'm going to at least – that's going to be my sat day, right? 30 minutes now, I'm going to put a clock on it. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest and say that I am human, and you can't do that all the time. So there were days that I I can't live by that mantra, and so I'm kind to myself and I give myself permission to be human. But I do try to maintain that practice as much as possible. Yeah, it's really really important. So this leads to. I, I, I think we all have things we need to, as part of self care, be be grateful for and um, there's lots of things and I think it's an it's a personal and it's an individual thing so Will if you could share for us what are you grateful for now that you know the career that you're in now the the work that you do for people whatever that might be. I love that you mentioned this because gratitude is actually a practice that a self-care practice that I do at night um, and I built it into my relationship so much so that my partner and I actually say three things that we're grateful for for that day before we go to bed. Oh, so beautiful. The, <laughs> <laughs> so the practice of gratitude um, is extremely important. For me right now, it's a simple thing. Um, my partner works in music theatre and, you know, uh, at the moment there's no work there and so... I, I'm having the most amazing time being able to enjoy a relationship like a muggle would. So we get to watch TV at night and we get to binge on Netflix and binge on movies and we get to cook together and we get to go to walk for walks together and we get to go out for an afternoon run and, and talk and, and share and, and all of and enjoy each other's company. And it's awesome. It's those little simple things that, if the situation was different, I wouldn't have. Right now, that's what I'm grateful for and I appreciate it because that's going to change again once the industry is up and running. And so I make sure that I savor those moments as much as possible because they're beautiful and and they mean something. It's so important. It's all those little things. It's the little things that matter. We get so caught up in productivity and bigger, better, harder, faster stronger, more is more, and I think this is just a wonderful opportunity in 2020 to appreciate all the little wins, um, all the little things that we have, the simple life, and that might be one of the greatest lessons to come from it, and to be able to reflect on that and decide moving forward what works for you and what no longer doesn't. Thank you so much, Will, for joining us today and sharing your insights and, and your time is truly invaluable. Um, to all our listeners out there, Will has kindly offered to host a free virtual workshop via the APADA. 
um, website you can reach out and register. It's scheduled for Saturday the 1st of August at 2pm and it'll be a real focus on teacher wellbeing, returning to the classroom and coping as teachers. Lots of change and transition out there. Um, so please head to the APATA website at www.apata.com.au and you'll be able to find registration. Um, places are limited so we suggest that you sign up as soon as possible. If you wish to connect with Will, um, you can find Will on the APADA membership dashboard through the directories, so you can reach out to him directly. Um, alternatively, um, I'd suggest that you all pop on to Will's socials, both Facebook and Instagram, and you can visit Will's website. Um, lots of courses and opportunity and a support and assistance for whatever you may need at www.mrwillcenturian.com. All these details are at the podcast description so a quick click so you can head straight to look after and contact um, Will directly. I'd really like to wrap up today from a previous conversation we had with Will. He had three top universal goals and that was to be happy, to be healthy and to be safe. Celebrate the creative and vibrant talents of our educators and students by supporting beautiful minds in a healthy and safe way. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity. And I look forward to seeing everybody at the workshop and sharing the space with you again. Absolutely. Take care, everybody, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>